You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For December 26, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Well, it's the last episode of another amazing year of growth for the Energy Transition Show, and I'm filled with gratitude for the enthusiastic support of our subscribers and listeners, which continues to blow me away. Your notes of encouragement, your suggestions for future guests and topics, your tips about hot news stories, and your own personal stories about how you are changing your companies, your communities, and even your own career paths because of what you learned on this podcast continue to thrill and humble me. With your support and encouragement, we here at the Energy Transition Show are well on our way to being a fully self-sustaining enterprise, and we are hard at work dreaming up new features to deliver even more value to you, our loyal subscribers. So thank you, from the bottom of my heart. All right, let's dive into today's topic. One of the recurring themes of this show has been that building out a conventional grid isn't always the best way to provide reliable electricity to those who don't have it. In much of the developing world, it is simply too expensive and difficult to build the transmission and distribution grids that would be needed to give people access to reliable power. Sometimes it's simply more expeditious to build small microgrids to serve a particular population with a particular need, especially where those microgrids can be powered by local renewable resources rather than depending on big, expensive supply chains to bring coal or natural gas to remote locations. Longtime listeners may recall our conversation about energy access in the developing world with Justin Gway in episode 12, and our chat with Christine Ives Singer about the role and limitations of development banks in funding renewable power projects in the developing world in episode 21. But we haven't yet delved into the details of how such a standalone microgrid project might work, including the challenges in getting it funded and built, making sure it keeps operating, and how such a project actually helps the people it serves, as well as how such an approach contrasts with the typical big projects funded by development banks and foreign aid organizations. So today we're going to explore a fascinating project led by Michael Liebreich, the founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, the world's leading provider of information and research on clean energy and transport. He's a luminary in the domain of energy transition with a wealth of experience and insights of which we will sadly only scratch the surface today, because we're going to focus in on a recent project he helped create in Sierra Leone to build a neonatal intensive care unit. About a year ago, Michael saw a tweet from a physician in Sierra Leone about how some babies at his clinic had died the night before when the power went off, and the machines that were keeping the babies alive shut down. And Michael resolved to find a solution that would keep the clinic powered reliably with a solar-based, standalone microgrid. It's an inspiring project that I think our listeners will find instructive, but Michael is also going to share with us a wealth of lessons learned from the project that can usefully inform other such projects in the future, including how to make sure the funding is actually used to fund the projects and not siphoned off before it gets there, what sorts of regulations and rules can help speed project execution by avoiding delays and pitfalls, especially in customs, 
how to design systems for reliable operation when they're far away from their supply chains, how to ensure that the systems stay in good operating condition, and how to avoid having the systems hijacked for other purposes, as well as what development banks can learn from this experience. I love this story, and I think you will too. Then in the news segment, we'll look at the continued sharp decline of coal power in the U.S. despite Trump's vigorous support. We'll put that in perspective of the startling construction of new coal-fired power plants in the developing world. We'll update the stories of the failed VC summer nuclear plant in South Carolina and the ongoing mess of the Vogel nuclear plant in Georgia. And we'll note the new guidance from French President Emmanuel Macron on the future of power generation in his country. But first, our conversation with Michael Liebreich, recorded November 21st, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Michael, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Great. Great to hear your voice. Yeah, likewise. So actually, we've been compatriots in Energy Transition and buddies on Energy Twitter for many years now. And I might say we even have a bit of a mutual admiration society. I mean, I've long admired the work of the fantastic team at New Energy Finance, now Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which you founded. And you've read my stuff for years, even when I was a nobody freelance energy journalist. So, And you've also actually been a subscriber and a fan of this show. So I think it's about bloody time we had you on. Thanks very much. No, it's a great pleasure to be on here today. And yes, I have been a huge fan back when you were writing angry blogs about <laughs> shale oil and shale gas and what it would do and what it wouldn't do. And I was reading them. They were the best thing out there. And now I'm a big fan of this podcast. Uh -huh. I listen to it in the car. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad to hear that. So, you know, I think most of our listeners will know you as the founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, but you've also been involved in many other projects from the UN Sustainable Energy for All initiative to the Board of Transport for London, but I think I'd like to focus on your most recent project called Project Bow. This is a microgrid based on solar power and batteries, which was installed at a neonatal intensive care unit at Bow Government Hospital in the city of Bow in Sierra Leone, West Africa. This project was designed to provide critical care for babies, and it launched in early October of this year, funded by a 100,000-pound fund raised from multiple donors. It's a very cool project, which apparently had its genesis in a tweet by Neil Conroy, a physician in Sierra Leone, who tweeted this back in December of last year. The lack of electricity here means that three of our oxygen-dependent babies died last night when the power went off. Not good enough in 2017. Low-cost tech, e.g. affordable solar power, must be a priority for saving newborn lives. So how did that tweet turn into a solar-powered microgrid project for a hospital in West Africa, and who backed it? So I was actually in Dublin. It's a complete coincidence that now Dr. Conroy is actually in Dublin. I mean, that's where he's based. And he had been commuting out to Sierra Leone and had set up this intensive care unit at Bow Government Hospital. And he had that experience of the power cut, which resulted in the death of those three babies back in, this was November last year. I saw his tweet by a complete coincidence. It was somebody that I was just following on Twitter, probably temporarily, a young chap called Franklin Kanyako, who's from Sierra Leone. And I saw the tweet and I was just on my way to one of these big fancy, you know, climate change dinners that we know and love. <laughs> and I saw it and it hit me really, really hard because 
we do lots of, you know, you and I, we just said, we've been wonking around and rubbing antennas and having good fun and doing our bit to kind of educate people a little bit about the transition to clean energy. But it's rare that we really think this is life and death. And it's not life and death in some kind of climate change, remote 2050 way. This is today, now. Yeah. And it's hard to think of a more vulnerable human being than a premature baby at an intensive care unit in Sierra Leone in this city. So, I contacted Dr. Conroy and I said, listen, if you can sort out all the stuff on the ground, permits, some space to put the solar, et cetera, et cetera, you know medicine, I know clean energy, we can do this, I will raise the money. And that's how the project got started. Wow. And who did you raise the money from? So I have a little tiny foundation. After selling New Energy Finance, I knew that I would call it almost micro level philanthropy would be one of my things. So I put some of the money into a small foundation. So I immediately said, look, I'll put the first £5,000 in, not knowing what the project would cost. And that quickly got matched by a few friends, a few people in the industry, some people that you might know. Most mm-hmm. didn't want their names to be named. Sure. Euroelectric, the Association of European Utilities, I chatted to Christian Ruby, the CEO, over dinner a few days later, and he was like, right, we're in. And they put in a sort of matching amount. You know, at the same time, I was talking to a few people about what sort of system you would need. It's not just lights and mobile phone chargers. This is a reasonable size system because you've got some equipment that you're running, some some baby heaters, oxygen concentrators. So we pretty quickly got an idea. It's going to cost about a, you know, sort of fifty to $100,000, maybe a bit more. But we got it to the point where it was pretty clear we could do this. And then I worked actually with my wife. She set up the website and we launched a crowdfunding. A former employee of New Energy Finance who had been raising money for neonatal health issues for personal reasons in the past came in, persuaded friends to run marathons and stuff. And it became just a classic crowdfunding. We funded the rest. I would say we ended up raising £100,000. Uh, about 40,000 was from me and the other more sizable donors. One foundation came in that was Hamburg Climate Funds. And we got, I'd say, about 40% from the bigger donations and 60% was classic crowdfunding. Wow. It's such a good cause. It wasn't terribly hard, I will say, <laughs> to raise the money, as you'd probably expect. Yeah. That's a great use of your network, too. I love that. Well, you know, I also had a lot of people say, oh, you know, you should go to Bill Gates or you should go to to the usual suspects. Or Sir Richard or whoever. Yeah. Right, yeah. And you know what? I probably could have, but there was also an element to this that I wanted to get. I think we had in the end about 260 donors. Huh. I wanted to do this as the network. I wanted right. this to be something because, you know, everybody's going to learn from this. And actually, that's part of the value is not just to do the project and get it done, but also to see if we can't get a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more momentum into these sorts of solutions. So I kept it as crowdfunded and a few foundations for that reason. And I've now got to decide what to do next. Well, yeah. I mean, now that you've established a funding network, you know, it kind of begs for another project, doesn't it? First of all, we're still taking things step by step. So there's one other person I have to mention, and that's Richenda Van Leeuwen. Richenda set up something called the 
practitioner network for energy access when she was at UN Foundation. And she was actually the first person that I turned to, to say, you know, hey, Richenda, you know, if I'm going to do this thing in Sierra Leone, who should build it for me? Because I don't have a clue. And she's got this extraordinary network still, even though she's moved on from the UN Foundation. And she immediately said, right, that's Energy for Opportunity. And it's a guy called Simon Willens. He's the guy to go to. And we brought him in to do the actual sort of system design, development, build it. Mm. And she then helped with the fundraising. But from the beginning, Richenza and I agreed that we weren't going to do the classic sort of Western donor, you know, airdrop a solar system on a flyby and then walk away. We wanted to make sure it was the right system, that it was properly installed, that the local staff were trained, that there was maintenance built into the costs. And that we follow up and, you know, one of the kind of, it wasn't really a condition, but something I talked to Dr. Conroy about was, you know, we want the research done on the impact because, you know, if we want to go to somebody else and say, this is how to do it, they're not going to just take anecdotal evidence. Yeah. They will want to know what was mortality before, what was mortality afterwards, yeah. you know, all of the details. And so, you know, he is currently assembling that information. It looks very good. It looks very, very impactful. But probably rather than just go and do another project, probably the most impactful thing that I can do is actually to take the things that we've learned and try to actually train and disseminate that knowledge. Very, very good. And I'm glad to hear that you're thinking about it that way. And I want to dig into that aspect of it as well. But first, let's just take a minute to satisfy what is undoubtedly a lot of technical curiosity by our geeky audience here and talk about the technical aspects of Project Bow. You know, how big is the solar array? Who made the modules? How much battery storage does it have? Is it grid connected or totally standalone? All that sort of thing. So it's Yingli panels, mm -hmm. 20 kilowatts, and about 120 kilowatt hours of battery storage, which is lead gel. And I apologize for that. Really? Yeah. So we looked at using lithium iron. In fact, we were offered some lithium iron phosphate batteries, I think they were, uh -huh. which would have a longer life, but they'd never been used in Sierra Leone. Simon Willens was very involved and he said, look, you know, it's your call, but I would rather not do anything new and different on this setup. So we went with technology that he knows very well. It was really, I mean, fascinating for me because I've done so much, you know, sort of writing and analysis and speaking. But actually, when you design a battery system, it's not just a question of how many kilowatts and how many kilowatt hours, but it's also about how robust is the battery management system? How many mm. times has the team installed the same one? Yep. And then crucially also in terms of battery design, what's the temperature regime and the humidity and so on? Yep. Because, you know, you really want in that environment, you want to be able to install it, lock it up and leave it. Now we're getting Simon to go and visit it once a quarter, but, you know, he's five hours away and who knows what the roads are like. I just don't know. So mm. we wanted him to go with something he's very, very comfortable with. And that was lead gel. How interesting. In seven or 10 years, we'll have to replace the batteries depending on how they fare. Yeah. And I'm guessing we'll raise a bit more money at that time to do that. Although we've got some funding. Yeah, we raised a hundred thousand pounds. We've spent about a hundred and five thousand dollars. We've also put in fresh, clean water. So the nurses no longer have to go and find a bucket of water at the other end of the hospital. They've got mm. a sink. Wow. They can wash up and clean their hands between patients. We did a few other things. So I think the system cost just under $100,000. And like I said, there was lots of things that we learned about which sort of batteries you want to use and how you do this sort of project for real, as opposed to on 
one of our spreadsheets. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm very familiar with that, having designed solar systems with battery backup over a decade ago myself. All those considerations that you mentioned are really important. But, you know, just sort of from a project design standpoint or just getting a project off the ground or trying to give people some useful guidance who might want to try this sort of thing elsewhere. I mean, it's such an inspiring project. And God knows there are many other places in the world and Africa and beyond who could use such a thing. So what can you tell people about what you've learned from this project and how it can be replicated? So I think the first lesson is... You can do it. I mean, it is doable even in, I've never been to Sierra Leone. Now, I have a sort of slightly unusual network. I agree. I mean, that's clear. But, you know, if you were determined enough, anybody could, and particularly anybody with an engineering background, you know, who wanted to do something like this really could, because there is a, there is an installer base. There is a technology base out there. The things that we did that were very good, we were determined, as I say, to build in things like maintenance. We were determined it would be a good system. It was quite interesting. One of the things early on was that the first system that Simon designed was a much smaller system, about half the size. And I just sort of did the back of envelope and said, but just a minute, this is not going to run the baby warmers, the oxygen concentrators, the phototherapy unit, the light. It's just not going to run that 24-7. And Simon said, oh, yes, but if you do, then it'll become very expensive if you do one the right. And I'm like, listen, we're going to do this right or not do it. There's no point in having something. So he was already sort of trying to make it cheaper. I mean, you know, we were doing a one-off project, so that wasn't really the issue. The issue was you've got to do it right. And one of the things that happened once it's up and running, the unit used to get 70 babies admitted a month. And now that it's doing such a good job and the mortality has absolutely clearly dropped considerably, more babies are being brought. So they're now doing 100 a month. It's you know, very early days. We don't have all the stats. But, oh. you know, size your system, not just for what your demand is today, but, for but think about yeah. the growth and so on. What about the, you know, just getting waivers for getting equipment yeah. in, the custom stuff, the how you get equipment delivered there, how you match appliances to the power? power output of the system. I mean, I assume this is an off-grid. Right. So what we did, we could not get good data on how long these power cuts are. You know, we don't know if it has a three-hour power cut or if the longest power cut might be, you know, a week. We've no idea. So fundamentally, this system has to be able to work off-grid. I just said, look, we don't have the data. If you had the data, you could say, right, you know, 99.99%, it's going to be less than a day's power cut. Then we, we just said, I don't know, let's just do it properly. So I think we could Almost certainly, if you did more of these, you'd invest in the data collection. You may be able to do it quite a bit cheaper. But let me just talk about some of the things that, you know, if I take the learnings, if I go to some of the sort of conferences that I might go to, or if I reach out and talk to some of the people I might be able to talk to, the sorts of things I'll talk about that cause trouble, that's avoidable if we all sort of work together. Hmm. One of the things that is, you talked about the waivers. If you import solar panels and batteries into Sierra Leone and many African or other developing countries, generally, there are going to be tariffs charged, import tariffs. Right. And generally, there'll be a waiver, a customs waiver for humanitarian stuff. Now, the problem with that is that you can't get that waiver until the stuff is on the boat and you've got a bill of lading. Hmm. So what happens is you have to budget not knowing for sure whether or not you're going to have that waiver. 
And in fact, the government changed during the course of this project. So we really weren't sure. And we didn't want to wait three, four, six months while babies were dying because of the power cuts right. while we went through a customs process. So the hospital has to ask the Minister of Health. Minister of Health has to ask the Minister of Finance. Minister of Finance has to ask the head of customs to waive the duties. And you can only do that when you have a bill of lading. So wow. one thing, if we could sort out that process so that you could say, right, for this sort of project, guaranteed up front right. that you will get that waiver. Well, that means that you can speed up the fundraising or if you're a corporate entity, you can budget much more easily. So, you know, those things we can work on. Let me talk about one other thing that I think I want to sort of bring some people into a room and bang some heads together. Say, well, the equipment that we were powering the baby warmers, the oxygen concentrators, were donated by UNICEF, right? UNICEF gave this equipment, but presumably never asked how reliable the power supply was. Mm. So we're talking about $10,000 worth of equipment that required a $100,000 power supply. Right. So, you know, I don't know what the answer to that is, but certainly UNICEF needs to know it is possible to actually provide resilient power supply, and that has to be part of the calculation. That's really interesting. You know, it does kind of point up the need for these aid agencies to be very closely involved with the project developers, in the case of UNICEF donating the equipment, and also to be closely involved with the governments to say, hey, can we get a streamlined process into place to get these waivers in advance? You know, I mean, it's that kind of close engagement that needs to happen. Absolutely. And they have to get energy smart. You know, that's the kind of the starting point. By the way, this could be Kindles in schools. It could be autoclaves. It could be sure. x-ray machines. You've got the same issues, right? right? The point is that we've got to be in the business of helping the countries to build solutions, not a baby warmer. A baby warmer with no electricity is not a solution. Just let me add one or two other things. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. 
According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, coal consumption in the U.S. is expected to fall to 691 million short tons in 2018, the lowest level since 1979. U.S. coal consumption is now a full 44% lower than it was at its 2007 peak. The decline is due both to the retirements of coal-fired power plants, which have accelerated over the past six years, and simply running the remaining plants less often as natural gas and renewables push coal off the grid. 2018 is expected to be the second largest year for coal plant retirements in the U.S., with nearly 14 gigawatts of capacity shutting down. That's second only to 2015, when nearly 15 gigawatts were retired, in part due to stricter emission standards required by the Mercury and Air Toxic Standards Rule, or MATS, which went into effect in April of that year. So lest there be any doubt, even Trump's full-throated support of coal and his administration's many attempts over the past two years to put a thumb on the scale in favor of coal, as we've discussed in previous shows, have not been able to stop the retirement of uneconomic and out-of-compliance coal plants. Item 2. Analysts at the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, an energy finance think tank based in Cleveland, Ohio, warn that China's backing of coal projects in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East threatens to undo the good of its own decarbonization efforts and create a more long-lasting dependency on coal. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.